0: Thank you, Serge, for leading us this morning. Good morning, all. God is always making himself known in our world. I made that statement last week as we were working our way through the prophecy of Joel in our series that we're calling Return to Me. We're studying the minor prophets. God is always making himself known in our world. And I said last week, isn't it sad that it took a devastating locust plague... And the threat of something even greater coming upon the people of Judah in that time to get them to lay aside their idols and to come and return to the Lord with repentance and fasting. What does it take to get the attention of God's people? Well, God is still making himself known in our world today in big ways and in small ways. Sometimes in national tragedies and crises and sometimes in just everyday moments. And what is he doing? He's always pointing us back to himself, to who he is, and then informing us about who we are in light of who he is, and pointing us back to the truth of his word. He's always at work doing those things. The question for us is always this. Are we paying attention to his hand? Are we? Are we just plowing through life without stopping to consider all the things that he's doing? Could we be as willfully blind as the people of Judah in 850 B.C.? We read the Old Testament and sometimes we think, oh, you you guys were so blind. Is that us? Are we just as spiritually blind to what's happening in our world? One week ago today, we all experienced to some degree the tragic death of Kobe Bryant. And it was uh, a challenging time for a lot of us as a pastor and as somebody who... Loved Kobe and loved the Lakers. It was both deeply emotional for me and profoundly interesting to watch, to see how people in this city and and really across the world struggled through all that it it meant. And let me just say this. I know that not everybody was affected equally. If you're not a sports fan, you're not a basketball fan, you're not a Lakers fan, you may be thinking, what is the big deal? Celebrities and athletes come and go all the time, right? Right? And so I don't wanna make you feel bad if it didn't impact you the way it impacted me, but let me try to explain just a little bit about what's going on. Kobe Bryant really wasn't your average run-of-the-mill celebrity athletes. For anybody who has ever played sports, you've stepped on a competitive field and tested yourself against other people, you can't help but admire the determination and success that this man had in his career. He was that rare combination of, of an athlete who on any given day was two things, A, the most physically gifted person on the court and the person who worked the hardest to get there. That is a winning combination. And so Kobe was a force. He was a will. He represented a mentality that never let down, that never quit, always pressed on to the next goal, thinking he could always get better if he set his mind to it and decided to work hard enough. And in that respect, the number of people and fellow players that he inspired is almost uncountable. In fact, this is going to sound really funny, but an NBA player actually said this in an interview this week. He, he said, in, in, in our minds, Kobe was like a, a, a true superhero. Here's what he said. He said, not Kobe. Of all people, Kobe can't die like that. I would expect him to find a way to get out of that helicopter and then bring it down safely. That would be a Kobe thing to do. And and he was somewhat serious about that. And so we mourn a remarkable human being who died in a way that just feels too sudden, right? And too tragic, especially when you consider the loss of his 13-year-old daughter, Gianna, who was already showing signs of some of the same remarkable traits of her father. It was tough. So the question came to my heart, and maybe it came to your heart as well. What is God doing in all that? How is he at work in our world? What is he communicating to us. And if you were paying attention, if you were attempting to be sensitive to the hand of God in our world, there were probably a, a few biblical principles that came to mind. How many of you guys immediately thought about what James says about life on the earth? He says, you don't know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. And so I thought instantly, there is no promise For any of us, for tomorrow, even the strongest of us are fragile. We are one breath and one heartbeat away from eternity. Now, obviously, my hope is is that every single person that was on that helicopter had a a saving trust in Jesus Christ. I I don't know the answer to that question. I'm not even going to speculate, but God knows for sure. And we know that He's righteous in all of his judgments, so we can leave all the big questions about death and eternity to him and trust him in that. But he's been at work in lots of ways. I saw another interview this week, and it brought tears to my eyes. It was a guy named Kendrick Perkins, who's a retired NBA player, played for the Oklahoma City Thunder, and back when he played, he had this very public feud with a teammate by the name of Kevin Durant. And they took shots at each other in public on Twitter and in interviews, and there was a hardness of heart there. Well, here he was, this giant of a man, seven feet tall, 290 pounds, with tears streaming down his eyes on national television, and he said, you know what? After Kobe passed, I, I couldn't hold on to a grudge anymore with Kevin, and so he said, I sent him a private message, and I apologized, he said. I asked for his forgiveness because I had failed to extend understanding to him and mercy to him and forgiveness, and I I, I wept openly as I, as I watched this interview, because here is this incredibly, probably prideful man, giant of a man, with tears streaming down his eyes, and saying, I had to change because of what I just saw. And so it, it dawned on me, how many other people are now contemplating their mortality for the first time? How many people are, are contemplating the fact that they have hardness of heart, that they have not extended forgiveness to others? There is so much going on. I have no doubt that God has been working and continues to work through all the tears and the sadness of Kobe's passing. So as we talk about things like devastating uh, locust plagues and we talk about the sudden death of a celebrity, it's easy to say, well, okay, well, God is always, he's always working through big things. We can agree on that. But what about the little things? What about the simple moments of life, the everyday occurrences? What about your life this week? How have you seen God making himself known to you in everyday moments? And again, are you paying attention to that? See, in the busyness of our life, we seem to just plow through to the next thing, don't we? But God is always at work. My testimony this week just personally was God slowed me down because of this terrible flu bug that just seemed to linger forever, and I couldn't get over it. And I have a tendency when I get sick to shake my fist at God and say, Why? You know, I'm a pastor. I should be working. Why would you put me down for the couch, right? And then it, as, I, as I enter into a time of, of communication with him, it just sort of floods over me. And it's as if he's saying, Jeff, you're weak. You're fragile. And you need to rest at times. And you know what? If you won't do it yourself, I'll put you down for a while. And kingdom work will go on. I'm in control, Jeff. You're not. And so I had this week a... a I had to humble myself before him and to thank him for it, to thank him for being sick, to thank him for even the hard stuff, to be grateful then that he's given me breath in my lungs and every moment that he gives me to live and to love and to serve others, and it changed my heart completely. So even something as simple as a flu bug, whatever you're going through, God is making himself known to you. So friends, look around and see what's going on. See what God is doing, and I know it sounds cliche, but hug your kids today. And tell your spouse that you love them. Spend time with your church family and cherish every moment you're given. Worship the Lord with abandon. Praise him for everything. Trust in him alone. Because all of us, we are, all of us, every single one of us, a mist that comes and goes. Amen? I know that sounds like the closing to the sermon, doesn't it? But I really did want to get that off my chest, and, and, and maybe some of those thoughts were going through your heart this week as well. It's good. It's good to see how God is working. And it's good for us to be ready to enter into those conversations with friends who don't know Jesus, and they're looking for answers. And so it's all good. Grab your Bibles. What book are we turning to this week? I forgot to tell you last week, so many of you don't know. Amos. Turn to the book of Amos in your Old Testament. In that section, we call the minor prophets. We are wading into a part of Israel's history that's packed with prophetic works. In fact, there's three men that that God called to prophesy in this very same time period. There's Amos, there's Jonah, and there's Hosea. And really, we could do any of those three in chronological order. I've chosen to go with Amos this morning because he's such an important follow-up to Joel. Everybody find it? I know, it's not easy. Now, last Sunday was pretty technical, I'll admit. We looked at a, a difficult book in Joel, a difficult book to interpret, a difficult book to outline. Uh, we looked at how he employed this technique called prophetic telescoping, where he took these multiple events that he was seeing, some in the present, some down the road, and tying them together using, using language to, to create this one idea that we call the day of the Lord. And so... Uh, Joel is a book that's filled with both judgment and hope. And if you missed last Sunday, I'd encourage you to go to the website, listen online. We post those every week. But I find Amos to be more straightforward than Joel. And that's good. A little more simple, a little bit easier to understand and interpret. And frankly, guys, it is filled with condemnation and warning that we as the church, I know it's been a lot of years, but we as the church can learn from some of the warnings that God gives to the nation of Israel Back in this day, so we're going to start as we, we will each and every week by looking at a, 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 a timeline. And if you haven't seen this already, I'll, I'll just give you a, a brief overview. We're in the divided kingdom period that lasts from 930 to 722 B.C. And you see in the, above the arrow is the northern kingdom of Israel. Below the arrow is the southern kingdom of Judah. And when we left off last week, we had two new kings in both of the two kingdoms. We had Jehu, who we called what? the terminator of Israel, called to wipe out the house of Ahab. He's ruling in the north, and in the south, we have this new king sitting on the throne, a seven-year-old boy by the name of Joash. And of course, Joel was prophesying in the south at this time, and Elisha in the north. You see those in pink. Now, that boy eventually grew into a man and into his role as king, and he will rule for almost 40 years in Jerusalem. And at the end of his life, Joash will be judged as a good king, one who walked in the steps of his ancestor, David. Meanwhile, that couldn't be said about what was happening in the north. I'll give you some more names here. After the death of Jehu, Israel was led by two very wicked kings, Jehoahaz and Jehoash. The first in 814, the other in 798 BC. Most of what Jehoahaz is known for is allowing the people group to the north, the Aramaeans, to oppress him and to go to war against the Arameans and lose a whole bunch of territory to them in a series of disastrous wars. Now Jehoash was a more effective soldier on the battlefield, but the thing that he's most known for is having gone to war against Judah. He went to war against King Amaziah, you see his name up there as well, and and he's known for having gone to war at Beth Shemesh in a very violent battle, having defeated King Amaziah on the battlefield, And then taking his troops up into Jerusalem. And think about this, a Jewish king looting the temple and taking all of the utensils and all of the precious things out of the king's palace. So not a good legacy at all for either one of those two. But in 782 BC, God raised up in Israel an incredibly strong leader and a king who would set the stage for the fulfillment of prophecy and the destruction of the northern kingdom. His name is Jeroboam. We call him Jeroboam II because, like his ancestor, he was a man that was headstrong and and, and a good leader and successful, but at the same time wicked in the eyes of God. Jeroboam II. Now, by any worldly standards, he was an excellent king, very strong on the battlefield, and a very able administrator in the palace. During his 30 plus years in power, Israel reached a level of economic and military expansion that had not been seen since the days of Solomon. This was a good time in Israel. He recovered every bit of territory that his grandfather had lost, and then some. He subdued the king of Moab. He defeated the king of Ammon. He even went up into Aramean territory and captured the city of Damascus. He expanded the borders of Israel to an extent that hadn't been seen since the days of Solomon. Domestically, his trade policies, particularly with the Phoenicians, brought incredible financial prosperity to Israel. Rare things of beauty and luxury flowed into the land. And there, for the first time in a long while, there was created this wealthy class in Israel that was living at ease. And all that sounds great. We, as Americans, we value those two things, right? Economic prosperity and military prowess. <laughs> So many of us in this country would have been happy to be in Israel under Jeroboam II. But there's a key question. You'd be forgetting to ask the most important question of all, how is Israel doing spiritually? So obvious rhetorical question of the day, because you know the answer. When do people draw closer to God? In desperate times or in prosperity? We know the answer to that question, don't we? So while Jeroboam was being toasted in Samaria, And while the people were enjoying unparalleled luxury, Israel was drifting deeper and deeper into moral collapse and spiritual apostasy. And into that very complex scene walks a man by the name of Amos. We call him Amos. And as a prophet, Amos was a very unique man. Besides his name, we know just a couple of things about him. He was from a very insignificant little Judean town called Tekoa. Tekoa is about 12 miles to the south of Jerusalem, not far from Bethlehem. For those of you who were in Israel with me back in 2017, you might recall we went to a place called Herodium. It was one of Herod's summer palaces and we saw the tomb of Herod the Great there. As we were standing up on that mountain looking down, that was Tekoa. And you might recall it was really nothing but rolling farmland. Not a whole lot there. And of course, that's basically what it looks like even today. So, You might recall if you were with us back in 2017, we saw shepherds in the field that day. It was an amazing thing in the year 2017 to look out and see shepherds near Bethlehem. But there they were. Well, Amos was a shepherd like those men. Look at the very first verse of his prophecy. The words of Amos, who was among the sheepherders from Tekoa. Later in chapter 7, we're going to learn two more really important things about Amos. First of all, he was also a farmer says that he was a grower of sycamore figs, and second, he admits to having no training and no experience as a prophet. Here's what he says. I'm not a prophet, nor am I the son of a prophet, but the Lord took me from following the flock. I love all the shepherd imagery, right? Took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, go prophesy to my people Israel. Now what's interesting about that calling is that he's a man from Judah in the southern kingdom, But God calls him to cross the border into Israel, the northern kingdom, and to confront them and call them to account. Essentially, God was saying, Amos, I want you to walk straight into the teeth of power in Samaria, and I want you to rebuke them for me. Amos had to have been a man of great courage to do this. And isn't this typical of God to call a blue-collar guy like Amos to warn and to rebuke the educated upper-crust snobs of society who really think they're in control? That's how our God works. Don't you love the way He calls farmers and shepherds and fishermen and tax collectors and people like you and I, simple people to do great things for the kingdom? That's how God works. And it's a privilege to work with Him and for Him. So, what you hear when you read the words of Amos is the terminology of the outdoors. This is an earthy guy, he knows the rolling hills of Judea, he knows the soil and the seasons. And the rain. He, he knows what a healthy vine should look like and what a, a healthy fig tree smells like. He's a man who lives under the stars. And so he sees God's hand in everything around him, living a life of quiet simplicity and holiness that pleases God. May we have ears to hear that in our interesting culture that we live in. Now, right from the get go, Amos brings to the land a message of warning and judgment. Look at chapter 1, verse 2. Amos starts out, he pictures Yahweh like this great lion that roars out of Jerusalem, and everybody who hears his voice is terrified, and rightfully so. And for one whole chapter, Amos takes his message of judgment to six nations all around the promised land. He lists them off, and that means we get to look at a map. Six nations he judges. First of all, he judges Damascus. That's the Aramaeans to the north of Israel. Secondly, he talks speaks to Gaza, which is one of the great Philistine cities on the coast of the Mediterranean. Then Then he speaks to the land of Tyre, the Phoenician lands, to the north as well. Then he comes down and he speaks to Edom, and he judges Edom. And we looked at Edom two weeks ago with Obadiah, this this nation to the southeast of, of Judah, the descendants of Esau. And finally, against Ammon, And against Moab, these two nations you see there that today are located in the nation of Jordan. And in each, you can see how the the promised land is surrounded, right? In each of those judgments, God lists the particular sins of that nation and then promises to send fire upon their citadels. And this goes on for quite a while. When you arrive in chapter 2, you get to verse 4. There's an interesting surprise there, chapter 2, verse 4. He's listed these six nations, but the next nation in line for judgment is Judah. The apple of God's eye is next in line. Thus says the Lord for three transgressions of Judah, and for four I will not revoke its punishment. The, The imagery there is the three sins fills up the cup, the fourth is overflowing for 3 transgressions of Judah and for 4 I will not revoke its punishment because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes their lies also have led them astray those after which their fathers walked so I will send fire upon Judah and it will consume the citadels of Jerusalem so what does this tell us even though Judah is 175 years away from from being leveled by the Babylonians and set fire to in Amos's day they're already accumulating guilt before God their day of the lord is coming but for now god's priority is punishing the northern kingdom of israel and the rest of the pages of the book of amos are all related to judging israel turn over to chapter 3 verse 1 Hear this word which the Lord has spoken against you, sons of Israel, against the entire family which he brought up from the land of Egypt. Have you ever noticed that God does this a lot? He reminds them of the greatest act of mercy in the history of of Israel as a people, his deliverance of the Jews out of slavery in Egypt. He reminds them again. Verse 2 says, You only have I chosen among all the families of the earth. Think about that. What a special privileged position the Israelites had before the one true God. And you can almost see Israel as they're hearing this, they're beginning to swell up with pride. They're like, yeah, that's us. We're the, we're the chosen people. And I'm sure they were already, they'd been quite untroubled by this list of other nations that God was going to judge. Even their brothers Judah, they, yeah, those guys, they deserve it. Right? That's pride. That's arrogance. They, everybody deserves it. But us, we're the chosen people. But then comes the hammer blow. You only have I chosen, God says, but look, therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. And their jaw hits the table. What about being your children, Lord? Why would you do that to us? That's the very reason for their punishment. Light creates responsibility. To whom much is given, much is required. So because Israel had been called into a covenant relationship with the one true God, they were not only first loved, but they were first judged as well. And for Israel, the terrible day of the Lord was coming. And it was coming in a very ugly way in the form of this relentless war machine that we call the Assyrian army. This is what he's foreshadowing in verse 11. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, an adversary shall surround the land and bring down your defenses from you, and your strongholds shall be plundered. The day of the Lord is coming for Israel because of their sins. Now, it's not as though God hadn't been patient already with them and long suffering and merciful, giving them chance after chance to return to Him. In fact, chapter 4, Amos recalls all the ways that God has been trying to get their attention. I started this morning by talking about this. God is always making himself known. He is always trying to get our attention. And God had gone to great lengths with Israel to shake them up. Chapter 4, verse 6, I brought famine to your doorstep, yet you've not returned to me, he says. Verse 7, I withheld the rains from you, yet you have not returned to me. Verse 9, I brought scorching wind and devouring insects upon your crops, yet you have not Return to me. Verse 10, I sent a plague among you and caused your warriors to die in battle, yet you have not returned to me. And guys, in all of that, God was being gracious to his people. Sometimes we we misinterpret these things. It was grace. Rather than just saying, I'm done with this people and pouring out his wrath, God sought to reveal himself more and more to his people. See how much you count on me for everything God says. Return to me and I'll restore and I'll bless. Do not substitute anything for me, said God to his people. And so five times God, stopped, God stepped in and he blocked Israel from falling into irreversible pride. Five times he cut her off from this downward path towards destruction, trying to wake them up, trying to get them to reflect on their sin, to jar them into repentance, yet they have not returned. And finally it was over. All that was left was to fulfill his promise to Israel concerning the consequences of breaking the covenant. We looked at it last week. Deuteronomy 28, I'll, I'll put a passage on the screen. Deuteronomy 28, 47 to 50 says, because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and a glad heart for the abundance of all things, for all the things that I've given you, therefore you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you in hunger, in thirst, in nakedness, and in the lack of all things. And he will put an iron yoke on your neck until he has destroyed you. The Lord will bring a nation against you from afar, from the end of the earth, as the eagle swoops down, a nation whose language you shall not understand, a nation of fierce countenance who will have no respect for the old, nor nor show favor to the young. That was back in Moses' day. God was very clear what the conditions and stipulations of the covenant were. And so now, the time was coming. Come back to Amos chapter 4. Look at verse 12. Look at how God puts this. He says, Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you, listen to this quote, prepare to meet your God. It's as if he's saying, look, you act as though you don't know me, child. Okay, okay. Then prepare to meet me in my wrath and in my righteous justice. Now, it's important for us to step back and say, well, okay, we see the wrath, we see the condemnation, we see what's coming with Assyria. What exactly were the sins that Israel was being accused of? What's the indictment against them? And is there something here that we need to take note of and we need to learn from? Well, here's the indictment. Number one, all the expressions of false worship in the land. Expressions of false worship. See, the Israelites were, were still a really religious people. Very spiritual. Put that in air quotes. We hear that a lot today, right? I'm, I'm not really religious. I'm spiritual. The Israelites were very religious. They were very spiritual. And Amos, using sarcasm, go back to chapter 4, look at verse 4. Amos says this tongue-in-cheek. He says, enter Bethel and transgress. Transgress. In Gilgal, multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a thank offering from that which is leavened and proclaim freewill offerings. Make them known, for so you love to do, you sons of Israel. See, most of the population in Israel during this time of wickedness hadn't stopped worshiping. They just weren't worshiping in truth. They weren't worshiping Yahweh as he he had instructed them. They were coming to this place called Bethel, and they were coming gladly. And they brought their sacrifices and their tithes, as all good people do, to win the approval of their fellow man. To say, if I just keep giving, we'll keep this gravy train going, right? If I just bring sacrifices to the gods, well, then we're going to continue to get all this wealth and all this luxury. This is what a good citizen does, right? We all come together, we pool our stuff, and we bring an offering to the gods, and hopefully everything continues as it's been going. That's what's happening in Israel. Amos says it's all sin. It's paganism. This isn't Yahweh worship. It maintains some of the outward trappings of religion, but it's an abomination in God's eyes. Now, what's the deal with Bethel? This is important to understand. Back in the year 930 BC, when the kingdom split into two, when the original Jeroboam broke faith with the house of David and the 10 tribes broke away from the two in the south and we we had this divided kingdom, Jeroboam, who I said was a wicked man but a very practical ruler, He broke away from Jerusalem and he got to the north and he built his capital and he said, "Uh uh-oh, I got a problem. I have a serious problem. God says there's only one place to worship and I don't have Jerusalem anymore. I've cut myself off from Jerusalem. I have my people, my subjects now. What if they want to go back across the border to Jerusalem? Their hearts are going to be drawn away from me and from our country and they're going to end up back in Judah. We can't have this, so what do I do? And Jeroboam thought about it carefully. And so in 1 Kings 12, we find that Jeroboam came up with an alternative. He decided he would build new worship sites for the people to go to. You don't need to go to Jerusalem. I'm gonna build you beautiful worship sites with massive altars and a sacrificial area and we'll bring in beautiful gold images that will meld with all the culture of the day, the old Canaanite culture. You're gonna love it. I'm gonna establish a priesthood So you will have people to serve you at these worship sites. I'm even going to create holy days and feasts that will mimic those in Jerusalem. You don't have to go back to Judah. And so he built them in two places, one in Bethel and one in Dan. Here's a map here. So the blue dot is what? Jerusalem. And the one close to Jerusalem there is the city of Bethel, right across the border. This is the one that Jeroboam would believed that would service his wealthiest customers and subjects, the ones that lived closest to Judea. Go to Bethel, you'll be fine. And up in Dan, the very northern border of Israel there, perfect for that rural population up in Galilee. They'll love it up there. No reason to go back to Jerusalem. Behold, Israel, your gods, is what Jeroboam said to the people. And they loved it. People ate it up. And from that point forward, throughout the Old Testament, every single king is judged. Did he walk in the ways and the sins of Jeroboam, who led the people astray? He becomes the standard by which all evil is judged. And so the people have these new worship sites and a priesthood and feasts. And the people say, yeah, this is a good alternative. It has quite a few of the the remnants of the old religion in Jerusalem, Scholars look at it and believe that it's possible that these people deceive themselves into thinking, well, I'm still worshiping Yahweh, but in a whole new and exciting way, through golden images. Why not? Right? We look at it and go, seriously? You didn't learn at Mount Sinai? But it's a new way of worship. What's the big deal? This is how self-deceived they were. Amos says in chapter 5 that these people were actually pining away for the day of the Lord hoping it would come. How deceived can you be? Well, we're God's chosen people. We're super religious. What's the problem? Well, in their minds, the day of the Lord means judgment for everybody else, not us. Look at verse 18 in chapter five. Amos says, oh boy, are you serious? He says, alas, you who are longing for the day of the Lord, for what purpose will the day of the Lord be to you? It'll be darkness, not light. He says, do you have any idea what you're saying? Are you that blind? It's not going to go well for you in that day. You're going to be like the person that runs away from a lion, turns around and runs straight into a bear. He says, you're like that person that goes into his house to hide, leans against the wall and gets bit by a snake. You're clueless. Woe to you who worship falsely and then still desire the day of the Lord. It's a day of darkness and gloom for you. So that's the first indictment against the people. False worship. Here's the second one. Ease in the midst of apostasy. Go over to chapter 6 and look at verse 1. Chapter 6. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion and to those who feel secure in the mountain of Samaria, the distinguished men of the foremost of nations to whom the house of Israel comes. Drop down to verse four. Those who recline on beds of ivory and sprawl on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, who improvise to the sound of the harp and like David have composed songs for themselves, who drink wine from sacrificial bowls while they anoint themselves with the finest of oils. Here's the key phrase. Yet they have not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, they will now go into exile at the head of the exiles. And the sprawlers banqueting will pass away. The Lord God has sworn by himself. The Lord God of hosts has declared, I loathe the arrogance of Jacob and I detest his citadels. Therefore, I will deliver up the city and all that it contains. So all this luxury and wealth that were flowing into Israel had made your people fat and happy and indifferent They were comfortably numb to everything that was going on around them. Now, it's not the luxuries in and of themselves are evil. We know that to be true. It's the arrogance and the self-sufficiency and the spiritual blindness that accompanies that type of luxury. You're not even grieved over the state of things, Amos says. He says, you're too busy to even see it. And you can imagine the type of looks and the type of comments Amos would have got. Like, Amos, chill out. Come on, man. Can't can't we enjoy some nice things every once in a while? We're so comfortable now and secure and safe. It's been a long time since we had this type of prosperity. Sit back and enjoy it, dude. It's a good time to be in Samaria. But in spite of all the shiny objects and the beautiful exterior, Israel in the days of Jeroboam II is rotten to its core. That's what Amos knows. And as you read deeper into his prophecy, what you see is this elite class of people. This elite class of people who had forgotten the poor, forgotten the needy, forgotten compassion. And in fact, it's even worse than that. They hadn't just forgotten the poor. They actually seemed to delight in oppressing and exploiting the poor for personal gain. And that brings about, I have to tell you this, a deep and abiding anger in the heart of God. They were trampling on the rights of other people. They were turning aside the needy at the gates of the city. They sold their countrymen into slavery for a price. They accepted bribes in the place of justice. They put burdens of taxation on the people. They cheated in their business deals. They seized the land of less fortunate people and all for personal gain. So God cries out through Amos chapter 5. Look at verse 21. He says, I hate, I reject your festivals. I hate your religiosity, he says. Nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer up to me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. I will not even look at the peace offerings of your fatlings. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not even listen to the sound of your harps. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing Stream. You may recognize that last verse from a a very famous American, Martin Luther King Jr., who, who used that verse in his letter from a Birmingham jail in 1963 to talk about the injustices of America during the civil rights era. In other words, he says, Don't bring me all that religious nonsense and all that noise and all that fake worship while you pervert justice in the land. It doesn't work. It doesn't fool me. Your hearts are exposed and you don't even know it. Israel had not only forsaken God but forsaken all of its covenant responsibilities and obligations. Their hearts were running after all kinds of things, but not God. And it's her security and her comfort that would eventually become her undoing. And so in the final chapters of the book, God gives to Amos a series of visions that symbolize the destruction that was coming. Two in particular First in chapter 7, look at verse 7. Amos 7:7, Thus he showed me, and behold, the Lord was standing by a vertical wall with a plumb line in his hand. The Lord said to me, what do you see, Amos? And I said, a plumb line. Then the Lord said, behold, I'm about to put a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. The high places of Isaac will be desolated, and the sanctuaries of Israel laid waste then I will rise up against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. The plumb line was a symbol of how crooked Israel had become. How far they had deviated from God's law and their covenant obligations. And it's interesting, right after that vision, in verses 10 to 17 of that chapter, Amos goes into a a really brief but interesting historical narrative. Because it appears that when Amos went to, to Bethel, to announce this vision, to say, this is what the Lord says. The people who heard him freaked out. The people who heard him say this, the ones in charge lost it. And the high priest of this false worship site in Bethel, he sends word to the king and he says, you have got to do something about this Amos character. The quote is this, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. Listen, the land is unable to endure all of his words. This man of courage, this simple farmer and shepherd crossed the border, walked up into the teeth of power at Bethel and said, thus saith the Lord. And they hated him for it. Man, corrupt people hate truth, don't they? They hate it. They can't listen to it. It's too painful for them. But the crooked wall always hates the straight line, doesn't it? Know that to be true. Even in the world we live in today, When you hang a plumb line, people will hate you for it because they prefer to be crooked. And so the high priest in Bethel turns to Amos, and he basically tells him to go away. It says, go, you seer. Flee away to the land of Judah, and there eat your bread, and there do your prophesying. In other words, get out of here, Amos. Go home. We don't want you in Israel. Go make Judah miserable. And of course, this is common today. People who are deeply rooted in sin, deeply rooted in self-deception, they will do almost anything to avoid listening to truth, won't they? The other important vision comes in chapter eight. Look at verse one. Chapter eight, verse one. "'Thus the Lord God showed me, "'and behold, there was a basket of summer fruit. "'And he said, what do you see, Amos?' "'And I said, a basket of summer fruit. "'Then the Lord said to me, "'The end has come for my people Israel.' I will spare them no longer. The songs of the palace will turn to wailing in that day, declares the Lord God. Many will be the corpses. In every place they will cast them forth in silence. And the picture we get there is this. Israel is overripe for judgment. Like fruit sitting in the hot summer sun, overripe and ready to be destroyed. Amos. Amos proclaimed this in Samaria. Can you imagine? Uh, This is a guy that I long to sit down with in heaven, to hear exactly how this transpired and the reaction that he got. Speaking truth like this in a wicked and corrupt and crooked generation is a very dangerous thing. And Amos was a man of great courage. So what does it mean for us? Are there some lessons here that we can learn? Guys, if there's nothing else that you take away from today, take this away. Judgment begins with the household of God. Peter says it in his letter. We see it all over the book of Amos. Judgment starts with with us, with God's people. May we never be caught unaware of the fact that our relationship with Christ comes with great responsibilities. To whom much is given, much is required. And like The Israelites in the 8th century BC, we today, the church, are first loved but also first judged. That's a truth. So if we start to forget the Lord, if you and I begin to drift away and to start chasing after other things, materialism, whatever it might be, we should fully expect God to come after us. We should fully expect that Christ will come after us, that our heavenly father will, out of love, come and discipline us. He will cause us to become discontent without him. He will clog up our lives. Some of you guys, you have testimony to this. Like, I started drifting away from the Lord. I became so miserable. The most mi- I've said this a hundred times. The most miserable person in the world is the person that tries to live with one foot in the kingdom and one foot in the world. Because he hates being in both. God will cause us to become discontent in that state. And he will do many things to get our attention. Many times he will call us to return to him. And when I say that phrase, return to him, I don't mean suddenly becoming religious and getting to church one or two Sundays in a row and saying a quick I'm sorry and then going back to my life of sin. That's not what it means to repent. That's not what it means to return to God. I'm talking about coming back to a life of consistency where every day, moment by moment, you return to your God. Where all of life becomes worship. Where you see God's hand moving in everything. Where you You make your dwelling with Christ each and every day and you abide with him there. Friends, I know you have to learn this for yourself because I had to learn this for myself, but I'm here to tell you that is the sweet spot of life. It's not out there in the world. You may think it is. It's not. That's not the sweet place. That's misery for a believer. The sweet spot is with Christ. Don't force his hand in judgment against you. Consider the joy of his presence to be greater than anything that sin has to offer you. Stay there and abide with Jesus. Amen? How about the two indictments against Israel in Amos' day? What can we learn from them? Well, number one, guys, proper worship matters to God. Proper worship matters to God. There's false worship and there's God-honoring worship. And who determines which is which? Not us. God determines that. God has told us what proper worship is. When did we think that we can just start doing whatever we want? When did that happen? Well, we'll just sort of make it up the way, you know, the way the world does it or what's pragmatic or what's practical. No. Proper worship matters and God determines. We worship in spirit and in truth. That means we worship the right object, only God, and we worship the right way according to what is true about him. Not worshiping our feelings. Not worshiping in a self-centered way. Not going through the motions of empty, useless religion. Guys, Amos is a devastating book for people who give token attention to God in assemblies and in songs, but whose hearts are far from him. It's a devastating book for anybody that comes in here on a Sunday and fakes it and plays the game and says words from their lips, but their hearts are somewhere else completely. It's devastating. Secondly, watch out for comfort and ease. They can be dangerous. If we find ourselves drifting away from Christ, it's usually because our hearts have fastened themselves to some other God, to some idol in our life. Something that creates in us a sense of comfort and pleasure Something that we want over and over again. And our hearts slowly begin to creep and fasten themselves to those things. And again, it's not not that nice things are evil in and of themselves. It's how our hearts are tempted away from the living God to worship those things. If we're not careful, we can find ourselves becoming prideful and self-sufficient. Just like the Israelites in the 8th century BC, we we can find ourselves becoming indifferent towards the suffering of other people. When things are really good and we grow comfortable and secure in ourselves, guess what? We tend not to think about other people. Everything revolves around us, so we tend to stop thinking about all the the lost people around us. We tend not to see that people around us are hurting. We tend not to think about serving others. We find our compassion growing cold, our recognition of injustice being darkened. And once the idol of comfort and ease sets in, We will do almost anything to maintain it. So we slip deeper and deeper into patterns of sin. Every one of us, you guys, is vulnerable to this. Every single one of us in this room is vulnerable to allowing comfort and ease to slip in such that it becomes an idol in our lives. And so what does scripture say? Guard your heart with all diligence and push those things away. Come back to abiding with Christ. Finally, let me just come back to where I started this morning really quickly. God is making himself known all the time to you. Constantly drawing you back. Return to me, return to me, abide with me. This is the sweet spot. Come and be with me. Seek my face. I love you with such a a patient love and a long suffering love and a gracious love. Come and sit with me. Be with me. Has he been speaking to you this week? Have you been paying attention? If so, then stay there this week. If you have not been paying attention, you're like, man, Jeff, I see it. I'm, I'm plowing through life from one thing to the next, and I'm not slowing down. I'm not quiet before the Lord. I'm not seeing his hand. What is wrong with me? Let's change that this week. Let's let scripture change our hearts and our minds. Let's be reminded that we are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. And let's not Let's commit to one another in this local body, not to waste another moment out there in the world, but to encourage one another to draw closer to God as we live life together. Amen? Amen, amen. Next week, Jonah. Jonah. Read Jonah. It's a great book. Pray with me. Father, thank you for, thank you for the hard teaching of, of Amos. I know, Lord, this is not easy stuff to hear, Because as we looked at a couple weeks ago, human nature is human nature, whether it's 8th century BC or today, and, and we can see ourselves in the Israelites of that day, Lord, and we see how angry you were with them, how righteously angry you were, because they had drifted so far from you and they had come to live for themselves, Lord, and, and, and as we, your people today, we know that you love us so much, but you also call us to a great responsibility, So Lord, do the work that you always do by your spirit in our hearts. Draw us back to yourself. Get our attention, Lord, whatever it takes. Call us back so that we might worship you in spirit and truth, so that we might come back and say, no more, this is where I wanna be. This is the sweet spot of life, to abide with you, not to engage with the world. Father, thank you for the truth that we are amiss that this life is short, that we don't have a promise for this afternoon, let alone tomorrow. And so help us to live every moment that you give us, grateful for the breath in our lungs, grateful for a chance to live and to love and to serve. Help us make the most of the time we're given, Lord. And even now, God, as we prepare our hearts to give back to the work of the ministry here at Oak Hill, Lord, you give us a chance to love others, to serve others, to look out and know that there are needs. And so we pray, even as we give this morning, let that be a part of our worship. It's not just songs. It's not just singing. It's not just hearing your words preached, but Lord, it's taking action through giving. It's all of these things. All of life is worship to you. May we do it well this morning for your glory. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.